0: Hi there, folks. Welcome. Uh, If you can remain remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Um, The scripture today is from Nahum, Chapter 2. You can follow along on the screens behind me or in your Bibles. Um, And just as you listen, think about what the author meant when he wrote these words about 2,000 years ago. The Scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened, the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped, she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, there is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where is the lion and the the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, my name is Nick. Um, if it's your first time here. I'm glad you came, as you can tell from our passage. It's going to be an intense day. Uh, it's always good when it's the first time at a church, and you, you, the the pastor's preaching on God's wrath and condemnation and destruction and all that stuff. But I'm sure you're going to love it, right? Because uh, it's, it's totally about you. And uh, and so we're going to get into this. <clears throat> um, you know, it's interesting coming to the book of Nahum. It's like you think you have God figured out in a lot, of, a lot of ways. You think you start understanding God's grace and you start understanding so much about God. And then you come to a book like this and you're like, you're, just, you're pulled back to say, wow, God is in this. God is totally in this. God is the author of this. God is bringing this about. What is happening here? Um, I mean, this is one of um, the most difficult books in the scripture, but it is not opposed to most or almost any of Scripture. Uh, Nahum, it's like a sequel to Jonah. It's part two of the story of Nineveh. We saw Nineveh in, in the book of Jonah, where Nineveh went through this huge conversion, the entire city from the king to the cows even, uh, we see the cows fasting, the, the king making the cows fast, everything. And then you see 200 years later, the city is back to its old self. They're back to their own ways, and God is not happy at all. Uh, so there's really uh, two, two people who are reading this book right now. And I'm going to get into a little bit more of them, but the two people are Israel, God's people, uh, Israel, God's people, and then uh, Nineveh. They were um, back to their own ways. And as you can see, there is a lot of wrath and destruction that's coming out in chapter 2. This is sort of the pinnacle in, God, in this prophecy given to these people in Nineveh where it's described, the, the description's coming out of how they are going to actually be destroyed, how they're getting destroyed. And there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. You know, um, talking about the wrath Obviously, it's not popular for pastors to do. It doesn't win them any uh, accolades or anything like that. But I remember when I first became a Christian in high school, I, I struggled for several years to really um, walk with God, to really get what Christianity is. Went to college and uh, uh, was, a, was a religion major and got handed a book, um, which was a sermon, called Sinners at the Hands of an Angry God. It was by an old Puritan pastor named Jonathan Edwards. Um, I read that twice in one sitting, and my life was changed. It's, it's, uh, there's one line I can always remember uh, where Jonathan Edwards describes we're all like spiders dangling over the fire, um, the, the fire burning the uh, web so that the spider's about to fall into hell in the flames. And I remember that, uh, that description and thinking, oh my gosh, my life, I got to do something here. I got to get serious about Christianity. And so this sort of hellfire and brimstone type of a sermon, actually God used that in a major way to change me. And really that, that, that's my prayer for you. As we look at this destruction and as, as you hear words like, behold, um, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. When you hear that and God's saying to you, I am against you, you're stepping back and you're saying, okay, I'm listening, God. I'm listening in this. What do you want to say? So this is going to be a really hard sermon, and you're going to have to hear it from front to back if you want to get the big picture. So there's two types of people, two types of people that are going to be reading this prophecy or hearing this prophecy again. There's Israel. Now these are, these are God's people. They would read this prophecy, and they would be quite happy to hear it. They would be really excited about this. I mean, this would be like, I mean, this would be like, you know, Ohio State, Michigan. You know, they're excited. You know, they're they're ready to see this battle. They're ready to see Nineveh get destroyed. Um, they're ready for all of this. And Jonah, especially. I mean, he's not alive, but I mean, if you can imagine him, two hundred plus years old in his old wheelchair at the top of the mountain, still just in his little booth waiting still waiting for God to destroy Nineveh. It's like he was so anxious to see Nineveh get destroyed because all of Israel was waiting for Nineveh to get destroyed. And we might have a hard time relating to Israel, God's people, in this because we are Americans, typically compassionate, typically. But, I mean, you you just have to imagine the Ninevites, the largest city in all of Assyria, and the nation of Assyria, all the largest city. I mean, we saw in Jonah that it was pointed out, this city is great, massive, huge. Can you imagine them, the big, the man, coming in, stealing all your stuff, stealing your children, killing your spouse, killing your family, and not just killing, raping, pillaging, doing all the worst the worst things you could possibly imagine. God, uh, uh, we see Assyria coming in and doing all of these kinds of things. And so if it was you, you would be really upset as well. You would be extremely angry. Your compassion, uh, your American westernized compassion would quickly turn into anger, revenge, frustration. So for all of Israel, this was God finally giving justice finally taking out the enemy. But the other people that were hearing this were the Assyrians. They were the ones actually receiving the prophecy. They were actually the ones hearing this prophecy from Nahum. And and what they're hearing is, God is against you. God is against you. Their pride was so huge that it needed to be broken. And so, and so huge words, uh, phrases that, that would typically for us just weigh us down, come out, God is against you because their pride needed to be broken. They needed to be crushed. And so this is a book for the arrogant, but it is also for the broken, the, 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 those who are already broken. Pastor Brad said this last week that Nahum translated actually means comfort. And most of you would read this and say, this is not comforting at all. Not at all. Uh, I mean, talking about, uh, I won't get into but talking about all the stuff that's in here, especially next week, Mother's Day week, talking about prostitutes in this. It's, it's intense. Um, we're getting into all that, but um, we have to see that this book does give comfort to those who are the broken, those of you who have been mistreated, that one day your accuser your, uh, the, the one who comes and who has messed with your life and destroyed your life will find uh, justice. And so it's comforting. And today, though, I'm going to focus on those of you who are more like the Ninevites, which may feel like a small minority of you here, like the Ninevites, like those, because some of you are going to say, I, I've never went out and pillaged and you know, raided a city and destroyed everything and took back, I've never done any of that stuff. Some of you might be saying that, Um, but God is talking to those of you who are arrogant, who bring an arrogant heart, an arrogant spirit, an arrogant religiousness to God. When you bring all that to God, that's what he's talking about. When you are the one saying God is a joke, or God is inconsistent, or God is unloving, he is this and he is that or you've just rejected God altogether, many of you need to hear that God is against you. God is against you. And maybe you've not said that. Maybe you've just said, eh, I don't know, I'm apathetic, I'm lazy, I don't know. Some of you need to hear, God is against you. That statement, that, that thought, that prophecy that Nahum makes, God is against you, is a miserable one, is miserable. Some of you have no idea how horrible that is to hear from a prophet about God, that the Lord of hosts, the Lord, the King, the one who created you, is actually against you, against you, not just, ah, forget them, but he's against you. He's your enemy. Now, it's, it's it'd be easy to take these, this chapter, this whole entire book, I mean, I could not find hardly anyone that's ever preached on this book, but it'd be easy to skip over a lot of this and focus on the good news. Where's the good news in this chapter? There is none. There is no good news in this chapter. Today is all about the bad news. It's all about the bad news. And so instead of me uh, apologizing for God, I'm just going to lay it out. This is how God is. And some of you need to hear it majorly hear it, and you need to feel it. It's written in a poetic way. It's a poetic prophecy, which means it's not written as a history book for you to analyze, like a history book or something like that. It's written for you to be felt, like poetry, to be felt, to understand, and to get this book. And and we can't apologize for God because God, he doesn't need it. He doesn't seem to apologize for the fact that he was behind all of this. He's not nervous about letting you know that he is angry or uh, against you because some of you need to hear it. And Nineveh surely needed to hear it. Nineveh needed to hear this and needed to get this and needed to feel this. So with that said, let's approach this chapter with care, humility, and awe uh, that God is much greater than we could ever imagine. So let's go to him and ask for help. Lord, we come before you this morning. in need of of help, of, of grace, of mercy, as we approach this. God, I pray that you would use this sermon to crush the pride in us, to crush the arrogance in us that we bring, thinking that we are better than you, we are smarter than you, we have you in a box and in control and all of those things. God, I pray that you would crush those and teach us who you really are. Do not sugarcoat yourself, Father. We want to know you now and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so what I want to do is I want to unpack uh, the most, this is the most basic sermon ever. Uh, Just unpack why God is against Nineveh, why God is against us, the why, and how. How does he do this to Nineveh? And then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I? So first, why is God against Nineveh? Why is he against them? Why is he against maybe us? And to put it bluntly, just to put it really bluntly, the message of Nahum in the context of all the Bible is that God is against anyone who's against him. Did you hear that? God is against you if you are against him. And everyone in here should be saying, amen, that's me. I'm against him. I I think I'm for him sometimes, but I know that in my heart of hearts, I would rather be doing something else. I'd rather have fun. I would rather do something differently instead of hearing or knowing that God is against anyone who is religiously arrogant, who comes with this arrogancy. He will destroy those who dare come against him. He will destroy those who come against Him, and that's that's really hard to hear, isn't it? I I know it's hard to hear, but what what would make us think that we are above God, that we know God uh, perfectly, so He comes against Nineveh for bringing this, for being the greatest city, saying and thinking, we got it all taken care of, God. We got this. Our city is massive. We have uh, have a great system going on here. We go to other cities, we steal all their stuff and take all their people and we make them our slaves and we kill them and we rape them. We do we got our thing going on. We don't need you, God. And God is saying, "No. I'm against this and I'm against you. I'm against you." And some of you have heard so much your whole life, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, and God doesn't seem to carry that. He's like, "No, I don't He's not saying, "Behold, I'm against what you're doing." He says, I am against you because it's not about what you do. It's about who you are. It's about what is going on. It's not about the sin, the specific sin that, that Nineveh is carrying. He's not like, I'm against you because you did this and that. He's saying, I'm against you because of the ver- at the very core, the very fabric of who you are is against me. Therefore, I'm against you. And you know, he's not partial to nationalities either is not a nationalistic thing like God is for America and he 's going to destroy everyone else because this is god 's country it 's not like that and the uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Israel's not saying that nobody's saying that God loves his people and he hates he hates those people he 's not like that he 's saying um, that because um, he's trying to expand or, or open our hearts to understand that God is much bigger. And we see that in many different ways. He's so hard to figure out when he causes Nineveh to repent, this pagan city that was doing all these horrible things. He causes them to repent, and they become God's people. And then we see um, in many other places in Amos, where all of these various cities like Damascus and Ty- Tyre are all destroyed. God's, those are God's people. He destroys Jerusalem. How many of you have ever actually been to Nineveh? No, because Nineveh does not exist anymore because it was destroyed right here. God does not show partiality to his supposed people and his not people. He is for those who are for him and he's against those who are against him. And that's the point. We we, we, um, see in many other places where God shows his grace to those who aren't uh, part of his tribe, and he shows destruction to those who are part of his tribe. And that, uh, that means for us, that really means that we can't lean in, depend on mom and dad's religion, grandma and grandpa's religion, uh, or our kids' religion, or faith, or any of those kinds of things. We cannot depend on those, but God is making it clear that this book is written to show us that God will win even against the greatest city of people in the world. He will win, and he wants us on his side. We must be on his side. Nineveh was a powerful, great, a powerfully great city, huge uh, in numbers. For that time, it was the most powerful city in the world, the biggest. And God boldly says uh, other places in the word, in Isaiah, says when the lord had finished all his work on mount zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So he's saying, I'm going to destroy the king of Assyria for his arrogant heart. And you know what he's referring to? In 2 Kings, the, 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 the king of Nineveh, the, the ruler of Nineveh, of Assyria, stands up and tells everybody tells everybody not to listen to the prophets who come around and say, God is against you these kinds of things, who tries to sway you away from our conquest to uh, destroy and take over all these cities. And uh, we see, yeah, we see that the king of Assyria, he actually goes and tells people this, and God is saying in Isaiah 10 that he is going to punish him. Again, in Zephaniah, it's a book in the Bible, we probably didn't know that existed either, God will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. And again, he says, the pride of Assyria will be brought down. You see, the point of all of this being said is it is the pride of us that brings us down. It is our arrogant heart. It is us coming to God. And some of you just can't see it. You can't recognize it just like Nineveh couldn't they couldn't even see their own pride because they were all in it it's like telling a fish hey you know you're wet they really you don't think about that they just are and god wanted to make it clear that he is not messing around so so the question we ought to be asking is why why is god like this why is he doing this why is he so against nineveh why is he so against us <clears throat> we must understand the why so that we can apply and and know the wisdom that is coming out of this. So, in Psalm 103, we see this beautiful psalm. Um, We see God says, uh, or we see that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Some translations say compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, right there in the beginning. That 's the verse that we memorize, the verse we have our kids memorize it 's a beautiful verse, and we teach uh, we teach that one, but then we forget the next verse that says he doesn 't keep his anger forever. Some of you are like, oh, that's nice he doesn't keep it like he lets it go. He's, no, he lets it go as in he, it comes out like a damn you know you 've got it all damned up, and he 's got it all damned up he 's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, but then there comes a point where Boom, he doesn't keep his anger forever. And that means he is patient with us, slow to that anger. But we often think of God's anger like our anger, right? When my kids just are constantly annoying me all the time when they're, they're yelling in the house or they're, they're talking back or something, you're just like, stop it, be quiet. You know, you just snap at them. It's the anger comes out, He's bursting. And God's not like that. He is slow to anger, and he looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the moment. He's not like, I saw you sin. I saw you sin. You did that. I saw what you did. It's like this slowly, the heart's all joining together with arrogance coming out, arrogance building up. And what we see is God making justice, justice the order of the day for them instead of his mercy, mercy. So what we see is Jonah is all about God's mercy and God's grace. And then we say, see Nahum all about God's wrath and his anger and frustration. And what happens is these, these books are very different. And so instead of grace and repentance being the priority of God in, in the beginning for Nineveh, now it is wrath and destruction because there's got to be a time. There's got to be justice. So he flips it. And this isn't just here. It's not just in these few books that we see this crazy contrast, this this mind-blowing contrast. We see it in Ezekiel 5, in Jeremiah 50, other places where God carries out his justice by reminding the people boldly, I'm against you. He says it uh, dozens of times in the scriptures. God says, I'm against you. And he's against them, and carrying out his justice because Assyria had a, an unbelievably wicked heart it's not just that they murdered raped stolen enslaved they did all of these kinds of things they that that's bad in case you didn't know that is bad and that was bad and they should not have done that but it was it was their 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 heart it was all of them coming together and just saying we don't need god we will do whatever it takes to get our own to get our own now it would be tempting to think, well, okay, so this is Old Testament God, right? Wrath God, you know, angry God, God who just, you know, kills people with salt and shoots lightning out of his eyes and they die and these kinds of things. the New Testament, God is like long hair, Birkenstocks, like really, really friendly, mellowed out, you know. He's really friendly. He just comes to bring peace. But we, we most of you here know that's not true, Right? you know that that's not true. We know that uh, in, in, the, in the New Testament, um, Jesus is not showing a different side. Um, God doesn't change. We, we see Jesus boldly tells us that many will know him and will do many miracles in his name, and he will say, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. He's saying, leave. I'm against you. You're not with me. Uh, he tells us that if we are for him, then we must pick up our cross and follow. He tells us that if we want salvation, then we must be perfect as what? As the heavenly father is perfect. He lays all of these things out, and some of you are like, oh, I mean, what does he mean? You know, he's He's actually up in the bar. He's make, Jesus is making the bar higher than Old Testament God. Same God, just in case you, it was just a it was a play on words, but same God. But so we have to see that God has not changed. And in fact, Jesus has upped the ante in this to show us that we have to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, or we will be destroyed or God is against us. So what God is saying in Old Testament and New Testament and now is that all of us, all of you, are rebellious people and deserve destruction like this, that this is our fate, this is our future, this is a prophecy for us. And you say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I've never plundered anyone's property. I've never, uh, I've never sexually abused anyone. I have never done the crazy, wicked things that Nineveh did. I have no, nothing in common with these Ninevites. How can you say that, that I am like them? I am going to be destroyed like them, that God is against me as, as he is against them because I am a good person. But Jesus makes it clear that if you hate your neighbor, you've murdered them in your heart. And he makes it clear, Matthew 5, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed sexual abuse, adultery. And he reminds them that if you, uh, if you have done anything in your heart, he, he ups the ante. It's not just the things you do, it's even the, the state of your heart, the state of your heart. And he's telling, Jesus is telling us that God is against you because in your heart of hearts, in your natural state, you are against him. All of you, all of us are against God. You don't live up to his perfect standard because God is perfect. And because God is perfect, He can't damn back the water anymore of His anger. He can't hold it back because you know what? God is just. God is just. He's just, not just for the people that you have wronged, but for the fact that you have wronged Him that you have betrayed Him, that you have gone against Him. Now, I want to apply more of this in a minute, but you must understand that God is against Nineveh, and He is against you because by nature, you are against Him. You are arrogant. You, you, you have a heart that comes and says, you know, I don't need you, God. And The Ninevites didn't naturally worship God. They didn't naturally obey Him perfect. It wasn't their natural inclination. As we see, they have this massive repentance. 200 years later, they're falling apart back to their old ways. In fact, worse than they were before. And now, how does God show His anger? I want to look at the how. Let's get into the text here. There, there's four sections in chapter 2 as to how He carries out His anger. A warning shot, then some preparations from the Assyrian army, then Nineveh collapses, and then the final death blow. All of it happens in chapter 2. So verse 1 and 2, we see this warning shot sent out. Now, this is really, really important to get, that the the actual attackers are not known. This is going to bother you. So if you like to be bothered, listen. The actual attacker is not known. We know from history, and we know from other parts of the text uh, the Bible, that it was actually the Babylonians and the Medes that were part of the raid and the invasion. They were the ones who were carrying this out. But Nahum doesn't seem to think it's important to put who is actually the one doing it. Who does he attribute as the author? God. I told you you wouldn't like that. But, but Nahum only mentions God as the opponent because Nahum wants the Assyrians He wants the Assyrians who are super arrogant to know who they're going up against. Because if Nahum had said, look out, because the the Babylonians, the Medes, they're all coming after you, the Ninevites are going to say, we've destroyed them before. No problem. Bring it. And we'll crush them again. And Nahum wants them to know God is coming. God is coming with them. It doesn't matter who is at play here. God is coming after them. They still sort of had this arrogant heart. They still were arrogant about this, but this is the warning shot. God's coming. God is coming, and he's going to destroy you. Second thing is we see this preparation going on, and it begins with this sort of divine mockery of the armies getting ready. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny because Nahum's describing their sort of stumbling around. Uh, we see in verse 3, the armies start coming. The, the, the Babylonians and the Medes, they're marching, their shields glowing in the sun. They, they're, had, they're this massive army. The, the soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Their chariots come flashing with metal. And they got their cypress spears. And, and then what happens, verse 4, is we go back to the Ninevites where they're like, uh-oh, they're coming, so they are racing around the streets. They're trying to get ready. They, they were sort of surprised. They were jumped, and the chariots are madly going through the streets. They're rushing to and fro uh, through the square. Um, the officers are falling all over each other. They're stumbling as they go, as they get ready, get the wall ready, and they siege the tower to, to get set up and get ready to go. And so we see this preparation to fight. And then in in verses 6 through 10, this is when Nineveh collapses. These verses describe the collapse of Nineveh. We see uh, the prophecy that during the destruction, people uh, were were shouting to plunder the city and its supplies of wealth, which which is good to know because the Ninevites were all about the money. They wanted to plunder. They went and they plundered. And so we see that this is being turned back on them as, excuse me, somebody is yelling, plunder the silver, plunder the golds. There's no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. They're saying, go get it all. There's no end. Bring everything. Go grab it. And it's worth noting that when Jonah came to Nineveh, 200 years before, the author made it clear that repentance came upon even the, the, the kings to the cattle. Remember, the, they, they, they told the cattle that they had to fast with them. It was this weird thing where the cattle were sort of repenting, but showing that this verse, uh, this repentance was deep in their hearts. This is, what, that was what was being shown. But there is this play on words in verse 7 where it says its mistress is stripped, she is carried off her slave girls, lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. See, the word Jonah is actually translated dove, and I've never heard a dove moan. Maybe you have. If you lived in New York, maybe you've heard it, but at least the Columbus doves do not moan. The pigeons or whatever, they don't moan. Um, And so, we see that Jonah literally means doves, meaning the slaves were remembering. They were going back and remembering the repentance that Nineveh had, and they were repenting. Uh, It was was as if they were repenting, beating their chest, sort of starting this repentance process, remembering that God's destruction is actually coming. It's coming to them. But where's the king? The king is not repentant. Where's the people? They're not repentant. Nobody's repentant. So Nineveh collapses And then in verses 11 through 13, we see this final death blow. Desolation and ruin has come upon the city of Nineveh um, and destroys the greatest city, the greatest power of all uh, of the Assyrian Empire. And there's a ton here that the Ninevites uh, could understand when, when, when Nahum talks about the lions and the lionesses and talking about the lion's den. See, there was... The lion was their national symbol. They saw themselves as lions. They, would, they actually called their city the lion's den, where they would go out as lions, and they would destroy and bring back uh, loot and slaves and all kinds of trophies to the lion's den to share with their lionesses and their cubs, uh, not cubs, but their little kid lions, uh, and uh, yeah, cubs. And um, I got this. And and we see that we see that these lions, uh, for them, they, they they took pride in the fact that they were these tough, rough, massive lions, and that they, they could not be destroyed. But now, in verse thirteen, we see uh, that there is no more chariots. There's no more lions the lions destroyed. No more victims, no more Ninevite messengers going out and telling people to not listen to the prophecies, not doing anything. The Lord has devoured the lions and shut their mouths so justice is served. And this is important because he's making it clear that their toughest, their, their greatest symbol, the lion, eaten by God, destroyed by God, crushed by God. Okay just destroyed. Now, we understand why God is against the Assyrians, but how, how he shows his anger and how he shows his anger to them. But, but the big question is, what does this mean for us? What does all of this mean for us? All of us who are sitting back and saying, yeah, that's not me. That is not me. I'm not there. I am very patient. I am very gracious. I'm very... I'm just going to let that happen so we're working on getting a bathroom back in the kids area so you need to give more money Uh, that's serious all right so the question for us is uh what is that what is all of this what does all of this mean for us how do we how do we digest this intense passage especially when there's cute little girls running to the bathroom like how do you digest all this Well, let me change the tone here, that God is really sending the warning shot to many of you. He is out out shooting the gun and saying, listen, some of you need to very closely tune in, listen to me. Just as uh, to quote Johnny Cash, sooner or later, God's going to what? Cut you down. And you're not messing with Johnny Cash. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. And my prayer is that some of you who are arrogant towards the church, his bride, and towards him, would heed this warning. Because I know a lot of you, I hear a lot of you who come against God with your arrogant self, thinking that you know what God is and who he is exactly and you aren't willing to listen to him and be humble before him. It's ridiculous to hear some of you complain about God, make fun of his wife, the church, so arrogantly as if God's just ignoring you, as if he's passing you by and saying, oh, whatever, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, or these kinds of things. No, God is not dumb, and he's not going to pass over that, and he's not going to just look over you saying, I got, I got God. I understand. I don't need him. I don't, all of these kinds of things. He's looking at you, and he's saying, I'm against you. You must heed this. You must remember this. You must think about this, because this is your warning shot, and I've I've often found that the Those who are most arrogant towards God are the ones who have the most messed up lives. You're so arrogant towards God, but your life looks horrible. You're like 21 years old, and you're like, I've got God figured out. I took a philosophy class. I got him figured out. I know what he's doing. I can't pay my bills or get a job, or I can't put my pants on very well. But I got God figured out. You know, some of you are like that. Some of you are very much like that. You've got God figured out, but we must remember James 4, 6, which says that God opposes the proud. He's against you. And some of you are abusive. Some of you are abusing. I- I've, heard, I've heard several stories even this week of some of you men who are being abusive to women. And your words and your actions, and what you look at, and what you say. I know that many of you would say, oh, I'd never go that far. I'd never do that. But I hear, and I know that some of you are carrying that, and starting that, and you're on that path. You may be at the 101 stage, but you are on that path. God does not put up with your crap. And what's, what's ironic here is that most of you who need to hear this warning shot Most of you who need to hear this warning shot are going to be the very ones who miss it because you're too busy criticizing it. You're too busy criticizing the way it was said, how it was said, this part of the book, well, he didn't get into the history, or this, that, or whatever. You're too arrogant to actually hear the warning, and you'll go home and you'll complain, um, but don't miss this warning. Some of you just need to, to lay your criticism down Lay your critique down and start being in awe of God and start getting on your face and prayer before him because sooner or later, he will cut you down and remind you that he is God and you are still a 20-year-old idiot. The second thing that, of what this means for us is that he wants to make us friends with himself. God sometimes goes against us in order to make us his friends. It's a strange thing, but it's all over the scriptures. He he goes out of his way to sort of shake us and wake us up and say, come on, get some things together, get it together. Do you understand that I am God and you are not? And he, he sort of shakes us a little bit to remind us of this. We have to remember that God is for those who are humble before him, If you have been wronged, he will carry out his justice, and oftentimes um, he does this just to shock us out of the slumber that we're in because he loves us and he wants us in relationship. He wants us in a relationship with him. We see this in Jacob when God breaks Jacob's hip, and he forever limps knowing that God broke him, but he blessed him. He does this to Moses, where Moses comes against God, and God... uh, he, he assaults Moses because Moses wouldn't listen to him. And then what happened, he brought Moses into this relationship where Moses was used by God in a huge way. So God desires friendship with us, and sometimes he's going to smack us around a little bit to sort of wake us up and remind us, hey, I'm God, you're not, but I want to use you. So we can take away from Nahum, that God is warning us sinners against Him, and that He desires friendship with us. And finally, I I want us to see, if nothing else today, you got to see this. This is where we're turning the corner here, that it is only because of Jesus Christ that we have peace with God. All of this I talked about, all of this destruction, all of this against language is all applied to us. If we are not found in Christ. Jesus took on all the destruction that was due to us on the cross. He defeated our enemies and he gave us new life in him. Listen to what one pastor writes. This is a dreadful thing. It is, a ter- it is terrible to have the great God of the universe say, I'm against you. But it is not only to Nineveh that he speaks those words, he speaks them to all who sin against him, whether in Nineveh, Rome, New York, Philadelphia, Columbus, or wherever the sinner may be, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of such an angry God. It is terrible that we would fall into this trap. It is a terrible thing to be Nineveh. It is a terrible thing to be us against God, to have God, the very creator, against us. But we know that he is telling us this. He is prophesying this so that we would turn to the wonderful saving grace that is on the cross. Jesus took on all of that destruction, That's why I'm not holding back any of the destruction. I want you to see, I want you to see in the Old Testament, I want you to see in the New Testament, all the wrath that is bearing down, the burden that is upon you has been lifted only in Jesus Christ and the cross. If I if I take away the wrath, if I take away the destruction, say, it's not that bad, then you're not going to understand the power of the cross. You're not going to understand the grace that was extended to you in the cross. And because of Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection, all of that destruction that came upon Nineveh, all of that destruction that comes upon us is satisfied spiritually in Christ Jesus on the cross. It's in the cross that we have shelter. That we have the stronghold in the day of trouble. He is our refuge. He is our only refuge when the wrath comes. He is our only safe place when the wrath comes. And some of you just need to know and understand that all of that destruction that was due to you and I has been lifted because of Christ. That is cross sufficient filled with compassion, filled with uh, mercy and forgiveness. And if you aren't in Christ, if you are not in Christ, then you still bear the weight and the burden of this destruction upon your shoulders. And just as Johnny Cash says, sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. And I know that sounds really harsh to say. Some of you don't like to hear that, but you need to hear it. Because in Christ, he has taken it. But if you're not in Christ, you take it. And you're destroyed. Because God is much bigger, much more powerful than you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, knowing that you on the cross took the destruction that was due to us. All that was given to Nineveh is taken upon your shoulders. God, and we know that our hearts are arrogant and we confess that we need you, and we need your grace, and we need your mercy in the cross. So please help us. We pray. Please help us. We pray. God, send your spirit to change and transform us, to encourage us and love us. In your mercy and your grace, would you give us new life? In Jesus' name, amen.